Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Cody Wright. We're at Ockenlanai Vineyard in Dundee Hills. It's August 18th, 2020. Cody, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) Good to be back. Uh, First question for you, uh, why wine? Uh, Wine is something I kind of naturally fell in love with due to just growing up with it my whole life. Um, Growing up in vineyards as a second generation wine kid, vineyards and wineries. It's kind of second, second language to me and I, you know, when I was born, my dad was a winemaker and um, my mom kind of supported him through the process of uh, those early years in California. We lived in Monterey and, and Carmel Valley and my dad was uh, the head winemaker at Talbot. Um, and then uh, he, they caught a pretty serious Pinot Noir bug and moved to Oregon. And um, obviously I followed suit. And so growing up in wineries and uh, vineyards and such on tractors at early ages, you know, at 10 years old, that would be like, get out of my hair, go drive a forklift. Uh, not, you know, kind of not normal things all the time. So uh, that, was, that was how I grew up, around fermenters, doing punch downs at young ages around the grape a lot and uh, created my own um, identity with it and it became something that was really, really important to me. And I ended up going to university and studying environmental science at University of Oregon, uh, really wanting to go for geology, but I, the rock chemistry ended up being like, as I just got into the, the deep, deep, deeps of it, not only was it just overwhelming, but it's just extremely excruciating on my brain. And um, I wasn't quite built, I think, for that. It just ended up being too much. And so I kind of went the environmental science and did more slope science and rock science, lots of geology, but not quite a geology degree. But I really did originally go for geology mm-hmm. um, and ended up getting an environmental science degree and environmental geography degree. So just a lot of uh, you know soil studies, uh, earth studies some water science um, and took that graduated in 03 uh, it was a five-year program and uh, immediately I have some connections in the wine industry <laughs> and I was able to I got an internship in Australia and uh, first thing I did was work for actually Alan Holstein in Argyle Vineyards when I got out of school for the summer and then um, and then I did a harvest with Argyle, actually, I think. And then I went over to Australia and made a bunch of wine for a year with a bunch of guys that I met at Argyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, previous to that, I'd done, you know, I don't know, every vintage with my family since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I've been through some really, really challenging times with my family in the Oregon wine industry back when it always was raining during harvest before this whole sun thing showed up. And um, so I have a, you know, kind of a different feel for the industry and Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm part of kind of like a little bit of an older guard in a sense of, um, I don't know, just uh, 
just been here a while with my family and and uh, it's been pretty wild to watch it all change. So lots of questions from that. So I'm, I'm gonna, I want to back up for a second and I'm curious, was it, was wine, I, did it feel like an, an inevitability for you? Did you ever think about doing something else? Was it always kind of geared toward wine? Well, I always liked alcohol. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I always liked plants and rocks and uh, I just love being outside. Um, I loved horticulture. I loved, I loved the, the identifying how things worked and why they worked. And um, I think if I had come at it from a different angle and not, you know, and somehow found wine outside of my family and it wouldn't have been so, um, you know, direct in my life, I, I probably, if, if I would have, it would have done a fermentation science degree or something like that. But I feel like I'd done quite a bit of natural fermenting with my family my whole life as you know 10 years old to 20 years old or whatever and I'm not saying that I was a master of it by any means um, but I had a pretty solid understanding of you know how how you know how grapes are growing and 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 theoretically how to take care of them pretty well because I worked in vineyards all summer and would help my family manage all of our vineyards all through college and all through high school it's what I did put together a team of buddies and we'd help Ken back before he had crews and stuff like that not really because we wanted to, but because it was told to. Um, but it was, yeah, I just, you know, I felt kind of just loved it for what it was, you know, just the whole, that whole process. And I think really what for me, um, falling in love with the process of winemaking is what I, I love so much. Um, obviously, I love Pinot Noir and I love Chardonnay, but I'm a big process person and I love, um, you know, starting in the vineyard, starting from the beginning, starting from pruning and finishing it all the way mm. into the bottle. And um, it's a very, it's, it's just really an incredible process to be a part of. And it's very challenging. And I think that that's why I also enjoy it so much is I don't like the easy things. It's not very smart, but it's um, kind of <laughs> my way. I feel like sometimes the harder things are, the more I, I I push on mm -hmm. them and sometimes wine feels like that. It's, it's a very challenging industry, whether you've got a tough vintage or business wise or selling wine or, you know, it's just got so many facets that um, uh, I enjoy all the challenges. I like to be able to dive from one thing to the next, especially from the vineyard to the winery, being able to grow grapes and kind of manicure this really special thing and then be able to go into the, into the winery in the same sense and throw different finesse into that and you know that it's it's this beautiful thing of being able to um you know really farm agriculture and then be able to put art into it in the winery and have style and technique and flavor and be able to be like a farming chef you know you like get to take these things these these this, this thing you grew whether it's in the garden or on the farm or anything like that and and you get to take it into the kitchen, the winery, and, and cook your cook it, and uh, you know, throw your spin on it and your twist, and and uh, throw your love into it, and get to make these incredible meals. Is how I see it, and um, so I, I yeah I enjoy it for that. Mm -hmm. See, so grow up with it being kind of second nature. You're just in a wine family. You're doing vineyard work. You're you're around fermenters, like you say. We're around tractors. I'm curious about your first experience working for someone other than your father. Uh, you mentioned Al Holstein as kind of the first person. How, how did it differ from what you had already done? Actually, I did my first harvest-ish outside of, uh, I worked for Argyle. I did my first harvest for Rollin when I was like 15. 
I'm 40 now. Um, and I think all those guys just thought it was hilarious to just like put me over the fire. And so like, they'd always just give me the worst jobs and make me do just the dirtiest, nastiest stuff. And um, only because <laughs> that's what I probably would have done to me too. <laughs> but, but I think just because, you know, I, you know, I was just some cocky kid at one point too. And, um, um, you know, and so, yeah, my early experiences of wine were that I think I learned early on that to be really true is that um, it's, it's a very unique thing, but it's also, there's a lot of moments where you can make huge mistakes. And I think I learned that from a really early age of just being like, you need to really, um, I mean, there's moments, things that you can move through quickly, uh, but a lot of the time in, in this industry, whether it's farming or whether it's in the winery, you need to, you know, really take your time and do things right and get them correct. Otherwise, not only can you hurt yourself, mm -hmm. uh, you can hurt other people, mm -hmm. and 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 big accidents can happen. And um, and so I've always been kind of like I'm always like the you know the sheriff in a winery in a sense, like kind of like slow your forklift down and um, don't do that. And uh, you know I know people get annoyed with it, but <laughs> I just I've seen some crazy things happen and. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's just a lot of heavy equipment and a lot of big pieces moving in wineries and in the vineyards. And the more you just articulate and take your time and, and get it right, it, it makes it just a huge difference in the quality of what you do and, and your product. You mentioned Australia as your first uh, journey abroad to, to, for, for wine. Tell me about that experience and, and, and what you learned there and kind of what, what was different about it than what you already knew. Um, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was definitely a trip of my lifetime, you know. I feel like, you know, all of winemakers go on their journeys. Uh, and a lot of the time, you know, you're Australia and New Zealand because you're jumping equators because you're always making wine and on the northern one. So we don't all get to go to Burgundy as, as often. I've been, but I haven't made wine. Um, and so, um, yeah, the first experience was just fun. I was 20. I just graduated university, so, you know, I was 24. Um, it's like 16 years ago now. It seems like ages. But, um, yeah, I went over and worked for a winery called Napstein, a bunch of boys that I'd met at Argyle, um, a big crew of guys that are part of that whole family um, were there. And I kicked it over and arrived in Adelaide and moved up to Claire, and was in Claire for about four months, making wine with Napstein. And um, I just, you know, it's just those experiences, just like anything, you know, when you're out on your own, there's uh, no one to, you know, call, you can call when your gas runs out of your car, or when you're in your 20s, you know, just all the dumb things that <laughs> seemed like happened to you, um, or they did to me, or whatever, but it was, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's kind of a spiritual experience in a cheesy way, you know. Uh, you just get to be in a place that you've never been, around people that you don't know. It's, it's a lot of, uh, you know, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about being able to challenge yourself, but also um, expectations of yourself uh, and believing in yourself, too. You know, you know, just those kinds of things. You're out there and you're far away from anybody that you know, really know. and. You know, and you got to trust your instincts. And I traveled the rest of the country for about a year after making wine for about four months, and I was a big rock climber. 
uh, at that time and loved surfing too. So <laughs> a lot of surfing, a lot of sleeping on beaches. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was epic, super epic trip. Uh, and I did some winemaking when I was there too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I learned, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if I, it, it wasn't a thing where I was like, you know, my, my mind was being blown on like maybe the wines that I was making. Um, I, we were making, you know, big, big cabs and Merlots and Syrahs and um, uh, Rieslings and stuff like that. And they were all really super fun wines and really pretty stuff. I didn't really learn, I think, more about I didn't learn much more about really winemaking or how to make wine or lab stuff or anything like that. But I think through my 20s, I really figured out how to work. Um, and I think, you know, your parents try to teach you work ethic growing up. And I, work, I come from a pretty hardworking family. Um, but I don't think I really learned what it meant to really work hard until I started working for other people, mm -hmm. um, especially in the wine business. Um, just, you know, that, that self-worth and that gratification of doing jobs really well. And not only that, but, um, you know, being responsible for being part of a team and mm -hmm. being responsible for the quality of not only you, what you do impacts that whole team. And, um, and you just work in these crazy hours, you know, it's like being on a ship in the ocean. You just like, it's like being a sea ship, you know, like in a military thing, you know, really you just those harvests abroad and those big, huge ones with those a bigger winery, you know, and you just, you know, you get a little bit of sleep, maybe get one day off every two weeks. And you really, I'm, you know, as an intern, you're really, I'm doing some winemaking and, and, you know, and you're in the vineyards a lot and sampling and, but you know, you know, like winemaking is, it's like 10% fun, cool things. And it's 90% just cleaning up after yourself, you know, and the quality of what you do comes from how well you learn how to clean up after yourself. Uh, and that just goes for taking care of your equipment, taking care of your pumps and all your hoses and sanitizing everything correctly and cleaning up your, you know, and, and the quality of how you take care of your winery and take care of your equipment mm -hmm. and all those things is, is really what impacts the quality of your winemaking because you're able to keep everything so, so perfect and dialed. Uh, and I think I just learned a lot about working hard on those trips. You talk about kind of taking that time to kind of learn about yourself and about your like kind of what what, what it is you want to do. I'm curious, uh, did you have a path in mind at that point? Did you have a goal in mind for your for your wine career? What would happen next, or were you still just kind of playing it out as as it as it happened? I'm, I've always been a pretty proper dreamer. <laughs> um, uh, my family would back you up on that. Um, you know, uh, I tend to have a pretty large imagination. So at 23, I don't think there was anything that I didn't think I was going to do. Um, but <clears throat> actually, when I was in Australia at 23 is when I came up with the name Purple Hands because I had done Argyle Vintage and then I was in Australia and then I had come home and I was going to do a vintage with Ken at Ken Wright Cellars. And then I went to New Zealand that next year. And within that whole process, um, in, the, in that two years of doing four vintages in a row is when I came up with the name Purple Hands. And it really kind of inspired from being in uh, Australia with all those huge wines and the leaves were so rich and dense and purple. Um, that's kind of when, you know, you know I, I'm, I tend to 
you know, write, write, write the wacky things that go on in my head down on paper sometimes and, and uh, you know, lots of brainstorming and, you know, riffing on stuff. And mm -hmm. one of the think names that really came out was Purple Hands out of that whole, that whole process. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and Purple Hands, you know, it means, even though it's, it's got the beautiful color of purple in the name, uh, it does really stand for, um, uh, you know, just all the work that goes into making wine and, and, and um, just how, you know, that grind and, and that's, that depicts you know, depicts all that, that uh, all that handwork and hustle and, and time it takes to, to make that product. Mm -hmm. So after that, you have that kind of four vintage span there. Tell me what happens uh, next. At what, at what point does Purple Hands start becoming more of a reality? Yeah, I came um, back to, I was about 24. I'm back in the States, I did a vintage with with uh, Ken, it was my third vintage in two years, and then I was getting ready to be shipped off to New Zealand. Um, uh, and um, yeah, and that vintage, I convinced Ken to let me buy my own grapes. Um, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had, I had about 10 grand. And a buddy of mine and I um, went in together and just couldn't afford any Pinot Noir because it was uberly expensive. And also, I didn't really want to destroy the royal grape on my first uh, <laughs> on my first goes personally. And and I had ha I just had so many you know ideas and all this stuff that was washing and flushing around that I I just wanted to put pen to paper and start trying different techniques outside of my family's um, you know my family's uh, um, well-being mm -hmm. and uh, screw my own stuff up. You know, and I had I was doing skin soaks this and skin soaks that and just doing silly, dumb stuff that no one would have ever let me do uh, on their wines. Um, but I ended up making some really fun stuff and I bought about, I bought, um, about 10 tons. So it was, um, it was enough uh, to get into trouble. <laughs> and, um, and it was enough wine and people, it was enough wine that, you know, there was a lot of barrels and uh, we needed to figure out what the heck we were gonna do with all of them. Mm -hmm. And they were good. Uh, and it was like a blend of Syrah and Merlot. I couldn't afford Pinot Noir, the first vintage, 2005. And, um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and we just came up with the name Purple Hands. And after kind of going over a bunch of stuff and it felt right, and a bunch of people in Portland, I was selling it all myself with my buddy in Portland and we were selling out of, uh, I had this little van called the Tortoise. <laughs> It was a pretty special Dodge Plymouth 1980. Um, and I convinced Ken to give me one day off a week uh, from the winery and I'd work Saturdays. I'd still get my five days. And uh, he gave me like a Wednesday off every two weeks, off, a Wednesday off every two weeks. Um, and so, you know, I had a lot of help in that sense of getting it off the ground. Not a lot of normal, you know, day job guys could have done that. Mm. He let me make it in the winery for free as long as I I mean, I bought all my barrels and had to do all my stuff, but he let, he let me come in and process it, you know, those first couple years, mm -hmm. uh, let me store my barrels and, you know, get it off the ground. And, you know, I didn't have enough money to do anything, you know, that I couldn't have done that otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of support in those senses and stuff from the family. So I made it at Kenwright Cellars until um, I did five, six, seven, eight, five, six, seven, and eight at KWC. And then one day I'd gotten it up to like, we, we were selling all of it in Portland and we had it everywhere. I was like in every new seasons and we'd just done a great job of just 
just you know getting it out in the marketplace and and it was a great wine for the price too it was like a 20 dollar red blend and you know at that point i was like i'm gonna bring wine to the people i'm gonna bring good wine to the people i was like i was gonna change the world and um uh you know what i didn't know anything um and yeah we you know got it up kept we'd sell you know we we're selling all the wine out in oregon it was great got a couple distributors nationally and um cool little buzz and got it up to like 1800 cases and in 2007 before we left kenwright i got a distributor in oregon lemma wine company which is like the one of the oldest distributors in oregon and they actually came to me because they were like your wine is everywhere can we just sell it for you so you stop taking our shelf space and <laughs> And I was like, sure, because I can't do it by myself anymore, and I'm I'm making too much wine for other people, and you know I was a, really a full-time part of Kenwright Cellars. I was assistant winemaker there by that time, and I was you know I was busting bomb and then making my stuff on the side and trying to sell it, and it was crazy. Um, and then in 2008 or seven-ish, Ken kind of came up to me. He's like, Cody, we gotta we gotta talk. He's like, you gotta we, you've got something going here. And we can't make all this wine in the winery unless you're going to pay a bunch of money. And, um, and we just don't have room for it. We just really don't have the room. And he, and he just said, you know, you can either, you can either, you know, make, make Kenwright Cellars stay here, make a little bit of Purple Hands, or you need to find somewhere else to make it. And it was kind of a, kind of OS moment for me where I was like, oh dang, like, okay, I gotta figure this out. And I got so lucky, um, Ken and, or sorry, Rollin and Corby, Rollin Souls and my mom, Corby Stonebreaker Souls, uh, they were starting Rocka, well they had started Rocka Winery in 2006 and uh, they just, they were just building a new winery and they said, you know, Rollin was still the head winemaker and head general manager of Argyle, and he, he, but they had Rocco going, and mom just said, hey, and she, you know, kind of convinced Roland, because Roland was like, I don't know about this kid. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, hey, um, you should come be the assistant winemaker at Rocco, uh, you know, do all the dirty work for Rawl while, um, and then you know you can build pH up, and they they literally, you know, both Roland and Corby have been incredibly supportive, and are a huge reason of how I got my start with Purple Hands. Um, they said, you know, you can make as much wine as you want here. Uh, you know, a couple first years, we'll let you get off the ground for uh, for free. Again, you know, stuff like that, um, and you know, get it started and you can make, make all the wine you'd like, but uh, you know, make wine here for, uh, be our assistant winemaker. And that's when everything really you know, took off for us. And, you know, <clears throat> Ken was not super excited about that. Uh, I know if he ever watched this, he'd be like, yeah, probably w I wasn't. <laughs> um, but he, you know, our, my family is incredibly supportive and, and we've always got each other's, you know, really do support each other. We have a super tight family, whether, you know, from Ken and Karen and my sisters on the right side to, you know, to Roland and Corby and, and my brother. And, and uh, we, have a, we have a super tight team and everybody really does look out for each other. And they, they gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, and so, yeah, made wine, uh, you know, 
Purple Hands, I was able to grow Purple Hands at Rocco and make wines, uh, kind of do, you know, do all the labory stuff for Raw while he was still at Argyle before he kind of left in 2011. Mm -hmm. And when he came over to Rocco kind of full time and uh, left the daily management of Argyle, he's still a consist consulting, general manager, consulting winemaker uh, in 2011. At, at that point, I had got Purple Hands up to, um, well, by that time it was Marquis and I. And we had gotten Purple Hands up to about uh, 3,000 cases. Um, so, yeah, and by the time of getting it at 3,000 cases, we, we, I, I went, when Rollin came in 2011, I went full time for Purple Hands. Mm -hmm. I took out, actually, I was, I called Silicon Valley Bank and was kind of at a, had a meeting with them, and we sat down for a lunch in a sense, and um, I, you know, I was like, it's time for me to go Purple Hands. If I don't ever dive into this and try to make it something, um, I probably won't. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you need to be, have that, take that gut feeling and be ahead of the curve because it was, there was a lot of action going on even then, you know, it was like, if I don't, if I don't strike this match and, and try to pull this thing off, it, you know, it's just going to get harder and harder. Um, and so my girl, you know, well, my wife at the time, Marquis, um, we decided that I could go full time for PH and, and that was 2011 and, um, and we did. And in 2013, um, so at least by then, Corby and Roland, once I wasn't a winemaker there, they were like, well, you're gonna have to pay to be here now. So the game changed a little bit. But I got a really great credit line from, it wasn't crazy or anything, to you know, normal people's money, but it was a lot to me. Uh, and it gave me the opportunity to you know, have a little nest egg so that we could sell wine and just keep the whole process going. You know? Because with wine, <clears throat> you're always dealing with three vintages. You know? You've got vintage that's in bottle, vintage that's off the vine, and then vintage that, you're, that you really have in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So you always have these three vintages that you're juggling, and it can be complex. And not only complex, but it takes a lot of money. And you know, and you're always kind of looking at that bank account, like, wow, it looks like a lot of money, but like none of it is yours. <laughs> it's 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 all part of each one of those vintages, you know. The, and and um, and so, but you know, you skim just a little bit off the top to stay alive and feed your family, and you know, pay your rent and pay your mortgages or whatever it is, and and uh, you find a way to live uh, that way when you don't have a lot of money, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, 2013, um, we're still making wine. I made wines until 15 at Rocco, leasing our space. Um, by 13, Marquis and I, Marquis has some really amazing friends, and they had wanted to invest in Purple Hands for many years while Marquis and I are together. In 2013, um, behind me, uh, that maple tree back there is Latchkey Vineyard. And, um, it was offered to them and us through a connection that I knew, and uh, Marquis and I couldn't afford it. And with that, you know, we product the Campbells came in and um, they gave us a, a they bought 20% of pH. They're our only investors. They cash infused us with like one-time cash infusion for 20% of the business at that time, and then they bought Latchkey uh, and kind of turned it into the first Purple Hands estate. Uh, and then they also helped renovate the old. There's an old farm home there and we turned it into the first Purple Hands tasting room. And um, that's really when we got our first uh, brick and mortar is when it was like another kind of step 
and and like another part of you know i don't know when the spaceship breaks into orbit actually and releases the other thing and you're just a spaceman floating around in space i don't know horrible analogy but it's all that's actually, I, it's all I had. actually a pretty good it's analogy. um and so yeah it was kind of like another part of the lift off of purple hands and and um it was really amazing too because i had submitted in 2012 I felt like I'd made the best wines I'd ever made, and I had a Holstein and a Stoller, and this Baron Wall vineyard, and and um, I was super inspired by the vintage, and I'd really gone with my gut and made some I felt really impressive wines, and um, and Wine Spectator just I got like I got four ninety-three point wines in Wine Spectator, and they were all thirty-five dollars, and I was like thirty-two or whatever, and we got like all this press in the magazine. It was the first really really big press I'd ever got. I'd had a couple. Um, I'd had a couple little tidbits here and there in a bunch of different magazines, but nothing to that kind of caliber. Um, and things just went crazy for us. I mean, we'd only made, it was, we only had about 3,800 cases of, but right as we opened the tasting room, right as it opened, that magazine dropped. We had our first little online retail store and we actually made some money. And it was like the first time. And when that happened, it, all of a sudden, you know, it just changed. It just helped create a whole nother, you know, um, catapult towards or uh, catalyst towards the next steps. Mm -hmm. um, and we took that cash flow after a few years of being in the, um, and making a bunch of nice wines again. In 2015, um, the last vintage I made in Rocco, uh, we made top 100 wines of the world, Wine Spectator, number 63 with Latchkey. And I got um, four 94-point wines in the in the mag, and and everything kind of took off again, and we had this really great run, and um, it was pretty wild. <laughs> and all those kind of moments really kind of helped, um, you know, again, put, put, some, put some, you know, food in our bellies and gave us the opportunity to to do some things that we couldn't have otherwise done mm -hmm. without, um, you know, keep having those brick and mortars and having the tasting room to really kind of sell that wine to retail and not sell it all wholesale across the country, but it, it, it all helped. But then we took that cash flow and built the first winery in downtown in 2016, which was six years ago, four years ago. It just feels like six or eight or 10. It just is a big wave. It's been a long year. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I want to back up a second before we get back to the, that, that part of Purple Hands. I'm curious, you worked as an assistant for Ken at Ken Wright Cellars, worked as an assistant for Raw, and obviously two people who cast a pretty long shadow in the industry. Mm. I'm curious about working for them as, as family, what, what you picked up uh, and what you wanted to kind of, as you set out on your own, what you wanted to do differently with Purple Hands to create your own identity. Yeah. It's a hard question. Um, it's... They're both extremely uh, incredible people and they're both very, very different. I think they're both equally hard on me, which is, uh, you know, a good thing and a, and a tough thing too, which is kind of why you end up being kind of like, okay, I've, I've done this, in, in, you know, you're kind of ready to move away from, from some of that you know, it's never good enough kind of stuff. And I mean it in the best way and they know, they know I do. They're also, you know, just the most incredible people and they've taught me more than anything ever. But in that same vein, it's just, 
you know, when you're, it's kind of the same for my son, you know, it's just, just, it's just kind of the way it is. The expectations are so high. There's no room to wiggle in some senses and you just end up, it's just, it just gets old. <laughs> and I think for me, part of building Purple Hands was the freedom to, to, um, to live up to my own expectations that, um, that I have for myself and, and knowing that I am really good at what I do <clears throat> and, and just kind of being able to trust myself. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really what Purple Hands was is, and always has been is just the freedom to, to you know, challenge myself, mm -hmm. make my own wines, um, not have to have it be, you know, their problem mm -hmm. if they aren't good um, and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, they're just incredible. You know, Rollin, I feel like I got such an incredible best of both worlds because, you know, Rollin is super talented in the vineyards for sure. Um, but Ken kind of looks at the vineyards in a more holistic kind of, they're part of me, you know, um, way. Mm -hmm. um, and Rollin is such, he's, you know, masters in microbiology and he's so analytical in the winery. And I feel like having both of those winemakers kind of chop me up constantly, um, just really created um, the quality of the winemaker that I am. Um, and then, you know, just kind of my own philosophies and twists that have punched their way in there too. Um, feel like it's just gives me a lot of tools to mm -hmm. use, whether I'm in the vineyard or whether I'm in the winery. And I think that's also a lot of why Purple Hands has had the success it's had. I mean, if you call it success or not, <clears throat> why it's done okay. Sounds like, sounds like success. Um, is just, I, you know, I've been able to trust myself from a young age um, mm -hmm. because there was always a lot of asked upon me and, you know, I trusted, I trusted uh, uh, the, just a lot of decisions that I made. I was able to go with my go with my gut and make good decisions for a long time because I was um, under under such good tutelage and mm -hmm. and um, and I think too I learned early that I had I, I just saw the grape differently I think growing up in the winery with dad uh, and how I made wine and even with Rollin and Rocco and how he did his stuff I always just <clears throat> wanted to do it differently and they always knew that and I think that that was, even in the early years of early 20s with Ken, you know, we're blind tasting barrels after barrels and I mean, constantly challenging ourselves and, you know, being rolled over um, the cheese grater in terms of palate and, you know, what barrel is this from what vineyard, from what clone and what is, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, not always just like, you know, competitive, but it's always kind of competitive, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, I feel like I've always had a pretty, pretty solid palate. Um, and so, but. So how would you describe your winemaking style or philosophy then and how it differs from, from theirs? What, what is it about yours that's unique? What, what did you bring, what did you want to do that you couldn't do until you got to Purple Hands? Well, I think with Ken was, I just, yeah, when we'd be in the vineyard and we'd be picking and, and he'd be like, you know, I'd say, I really like where this is at right now. I like this acidity. I like this vibrance. I like this. And Ken would come in and be like, <laughs> that's not ready forever for three, three weeks. 
and you know, and I think we're all in kind of the same way. And I just kind of, I was like, well, I don't know. I think that this is this is how I see it. This is, I think there's something really special here, and this is how my palette and vision sees this. And that's how that's what all those great vintages that we were able to put in glass in every one sense is just kind of it's been, you know. I just see it in my own way. I don't want to make their wines. I love their wines, but I don't want to make their wines. Mm -hmm. Purple Hands hasn't had the success it's had because I just went and took Rollin and Ken's recipes, you know, which I think some people think is it. It's like, oh, how could he fail? He's mm -hmm. got all the, he's got all the, it's easy to fail. You know, you can screw up wine super easy and you can not do good business and you can, you know, it's, um, especially when those guys didn't, you know, sponsor this whole project. Um, but that was it. Really, the reason PH kind of has made its own mark is because I just have seen the grape in my own way, trusted that, made those wines, and thank God that people, other people liked them and loved them and bought them and then gave me enough money to do it again. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I think if you talk to Ron and Ken and they're behind this, they'd say that for sure. You know, they know that my wines are my wines and and um, the thing that's created is my own little, you know, my own little style and technique that I, and, and like vision of, mm -hmm. you know, how I want to show off Pinot Noir because I love Pinot Noir. It's so delicious and it's so beautiful and it's so special. Um, and yeah, so. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the, the vineyard piece. Uh, when you're either with your own vineyard, which we'll get to in a second here, or you're sourcing grapes from elsewhere, what are you looking for in a vineyard? What are you looking for in a site? What are you looking for in uh, people to do business with as you're, as you're sourcing grapes to make your Pinot Noir? I've been super fortunate to grow up around so many great vineyards. You know, so my, my caliber for quality is is very high and I was lucky at early ages too in my winemaking career to work with Dundee Hills fruit and Yamo Carlton fruit and Amity Eola fruit and all this incredible vineyards and also just you know I was just a rat seller rat at Kenwright Cellars around some of the greatest vineyards Oregon seen in their you know in these early days and mm -hmm. someone who was just taking such um, care and um, nurturing these incredible sites that I was able to kind of create my own uh, philosophy or you know create my own flavor profile for what spoke to me mm -hmm. um, that's with clones you know barrels sites elevation all these little things that people don't understand make such an incredibly large impact in the wines that are created um, I just, I, you know, I kind of put my own language together of what, what, what was really f my favorites, mm -hmm. you know, as simple as that. Mm -hmm. I love this and I love that and I want a little bit of this and I like that. And it's like, you know, you just end up putting, putting together your own favorite things and those are the dishes that you're making and that's all you want to cook. And I'm, I've kind of <clears throat> been so lucky to have been, you know, with Ken so long in his cellar that even in his, in his cellar, I would be like, I don't know why you're doing that and I don't know that's not good and you know of course like some dummy but uh, but 
yeah, I just ended up finding things that really spoke to me. And I like, I love everything about how Pinot Noir can be uh, savory and elegant and powerful and soft and, um, you know, nuanced and feminine and peripheral, but also it can still hold such uh, structure and restraint. You know, there's, there's so many things that Pinot Noir can do and, and I, the clones that kind of speak to me the most uh, those are the ones that I work with the most. There's like four or five. Mm -hmm. I don't work with the other, you know, all of them at all. I just really have a few that are my favorite and I tend to just work with those a lot. And then, um, you know, I, I really like vineyards with elevation because I love some acidity. I love the play of power and acidity. Uh, I love to make wines that are big and rich but have, you know, really killer acidity. And um, so, uh, you know, working with the Dundee Hills is is really great for that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the higher elevation vineyards in um, in the Willamette Valley, Amity Yola, Dundee Hills, Shalem. But then, um, you know, the the volcanic soil is so unique. It's so um, transparent and and you know, it's so beautiful that. It, you know, I, I ended up kind of really finding what I loved, what clones I loved so much more in sedimentary soil and clones that I love more in volcanic soil. And then, um, yeah, mm. it's just a lot of pieces, I guess. Mm. But I love them all, you know, they're all so unique. I don't think it's like one is better than the other. You know, I, people come into the winery all the time and be like, well, tell me which one's your favorite. And I say, well, what are you cooking tonight? You know, what are you having for dinner? It's like. I don't work with vineyards that I don't love. There's not a vineyard here that I make at Purple Hands to just make a vineyard. Mm -hmm. I make each one of these because they are so unique and so special and have such identity that they deserve to be here. They all have their place, whether it's, you know, your Monday, Tuesday, it's, there's, no, there's no wine here that I really truly think is better. They're just different and all so special. Mm -hmm. And you get to decide um, which one you love. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to tell you that. I just get, I'm super fortunate to be able to be a shepherd of the grape to the bottle, get to do what I love, get to make these incredible meals and then, you know, these insane dishes and then you, you decide which one was your favorite meal through the night. You know, it's like, don't, don't, you know, that's why we, you know, I learned that from Ken too with kind of line pricing all the vineyard designateds for us. They're all the same price. Um, because I don't, I don't want, even if one of those grapes is way more expensive than the other one and some of them are. Um, I don't want the price of the bottle to determine which one you think is better. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it, that takes the fun out of it. <laughs> you know, it's meant to be a journey. It's meant to be, um, an experience, you know, with your palate, with what speaks to you. And that's, what's really fun about it too. You mentioned the word shepherd, uh, shepherding uh, the grapes into, into wine. I'm, I'm curious how you see your role in, in expressing a vineyard, right? What, what is it you do to, admit, to be, best express a vineyard in the bottle? Farm it well. Farm it well. This vineyard, Hawk and Linnae, is certified organic, which is cool. I don't know if it means it's better. I think that, you know, you have a tractor that's in the vineyard that much more you're burning that much more gas because the sprays aren't systemics. Uh, I think that means that the vines are in better shape because you're not spraying something that the vine is, you know, pulling up into its body and 
resistant to things because of medicine you fed it, which I think is super important. Um, but you know, there's like pluses and minuses about those things. I think it's just the quality of how you care for a site. It's not always about farm hard, farm hard, farm hard, or, you know, it's like anything. It's, it's like, it's, you know, it's like, you know, good farming is, it's touch and it's being in there in the right time and taking care of something. It's mm -hmm. like taking care of anything, you know, you, you know, you can do it well, or you can not care about it. You can turn it into a widget and or a machine, or you can, you know, love it, you know, in the, that, you know, cliche way or something. And I think if you take care of, the, you know, vineyards like they're your family and you love, you know, you really do love them, uh, you, you're going to care about their vigor, you're, you're giving them uh, lots of energy in terms of soil amendments and foliar nutrients and you know you just you just want to take care of them and I think if you that sometimes means that you're spending money on them and quite a bit um, uh, but you know it all comes down to the quality of the grape and site first you know you can't no matter how you farm a bad spot it's never going to make great wine. Mm. So you got to, personally, you got to have that right place. Place is so important. Uh, aspect, you know, elevation, clones in the ground, the right dirt. Um, without the right site, you know, the grapes are never going to be exquisite. And so if you have the right site, the right elevation, the right dirt, and the right clones, then you can have an opportunity for the winemaker to not totally screw it up. You know? Get it in the winery and get over yourself, which is what I'm trying to learn how to do a little bit. You know, let your ego go and, and just try to let the vineyard be the be that big beautiful thing that it is. Talking about that that process of, of letting your getting yourself out of the equation, it's gotta be hard as someone who wants to you want to control what the wine's gonna be like. So how do you step back and allow the, allow the grapes to do what they're gonna do? And at what point do you, do you feel the need to kind of implement, put yourself into the wine? Well, I, I just think, you know, the more you uh, just let the vineyard express itself, the better the wine will be. You know, whether that's, you know, native fermentation is one thing and there's so many different, you know, conversations politically about what that means, right? And, a few years ago, I was kind of trying to do everything native and did a couple conversations on what that was, and that was important to me, uh, you know, four or five years ago. And it still is, I feel like, keeping native go, but um, I just feel like finding, not, you know, I mean, like in the ego, is like, this is what I do because this is cool, or this is what's hip right now, or this is what's this, um, kind of trying to find a way, what's best actually for the grape? Mm -hmm. what, what, what's the grape want to like do? What, what does it want to taste like? Like just because you fermented natively or you did this or somebody inoculated with this wild yeast or this you inoculated with this Burgundian, you know, dry yeast that you bought, you know, just because it's native, does it actually taste better? I don't know. Maybe it does. And if it does, then awesome. And if it doesn't, then well, I mean, okay. So it's good, better just because it's native or it's just good, better because it's, you know, you know, I just, there's so many different ways to do it. And I think finding a way to get out of the way of it and let, let the grape show, show itself the best mm -hmm. is what I would like to do.
Maybe I'm still not doing it, but I'm probably not. But I think I am better than I was. I feel like when I got the winery at Purple Hands, I, um, I just kind of started cowboying all sorts of stuff. Like I was like, yeah, this is how it's gonna, I'm gonna do this and this and this. And um, I liked the wines, but uh, I feel like I just needed to get out of my way a little bit. I was like, I'm gonna do everything native and I'm gonna do all of this. And, um, and I don't think it was really what was best for the, the grapes sometimes. And so I'm trying to just get out of my, get out of my own way a little bit with, and just try to just take it back to expressing the vineyards the best to what what is in the best nature of that and also you know it's kind of like being a chef in the sense where it's like one year I make something and I'm like oh I don't want to make that again and that's kind of how I am it's like I don't you know I feel like every vintage I make is a little different mm -hmm. sometimes uh, because every year I kind of try to do I just you know, there's so much, you know, different styles and techniques of things to do that I'm never just like, oh, this is the one I made it. Like, this is mm -hmm. the best wine ever. And mm -hmm. it's always like better. I want to be better. I want to make better wine. Um, and I feel like I get to try to do that. I mean, every year we make, we make fantastic wines. But I, you know, I feel like are the best wines I'll ever make are absolutely yet to come, you know? And so just trying to figure out how to do that every year. <laughs> No pressure. Right. And maybe they're not, I don't know. Maybe it's gonna go downhill. So you, you built the new space in downtown in 2016? Yes. 16? First vintage was uh, 16. 16. We moved in like, we just harvest was about to end. I don't know if you remember 16, but we were picking in August. So like, yeah. I think July the winery finished. It was crazy and we just, it was just nuts. And uh, my son was two and we had, um, yeah, we had a little house in Dundee and, and we moved everything from Rocco and I f got into the first real amount of debt that I had been in yet. <laughs> and, um, yeah, first 16. And you, and you mentioned that that was, that kind of changed your, your style a little bit. You kind of suddenly had a lot of freedom, I assume, and a lot of, and a lot of space to I try things out. I freedom. I think I just... Yeah, I think you're right. Like I was, I wasn't in Ken Wright Cellars anymore. I wasn't in Rocco. I mean, even though I was, I was in those spaces, I was leasing those spaces or whatever, and I was there. They, they never, they always let me just do my dumb stuff. Like I, you know, they let me make my own risks and make, you know, there was, there was never anybody like, are you sure you want to do that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They never did that to me because they knew it would have pissed me off first and foremost. Um, but not that they cared if I was pissed off or anything, but. I just, they just, they let me, they let me roam, you know? I think the last wine I ever let anybody taste before I put it in bottle between Ken and Roland was 2009. I never let them taste anything since then because actually I had a wine that I really liked in 09 and I brought it to Ken and he tasted it and I tasted it with me and we tasted it and we critically analyzed it and then I brought it to Roland and so I had like, you know, the control and then I had these two hypotheses and I had these different things and I, I ended up doing a little bit of, you know, changing of the wine because of not what I thought, what they thought. And um, I freaking hated that wine forever. Still hate that wine. And I changed it. I, I actually really liked the wine. I thought it was beautiful. 
And then because of kind of that conversation we had, and not out of spite to them, not because, you know, you know, not, not, not for any other reason than like, oh, they made it and that it got bad. It, you know, probably it wasn't very good anyways. I just loved it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I ended up changing the wine and, and then that wine disappointed me for so long. And I know, I remember it, and I know that if I would have just gone with my gut and followed my two cents, I would have made the wine that I wanted. And I learned a hard lesson that time. And from then on, um, no one, you know, maybe my wife um, will taste wines that I've blended and put together before they go to glass. And I'll have let people barrel taste, you know, through the year. But um, no one gives input on my wines other than me and my, my, my boss, Marky. <laughs> my wife. And that's usually like, no, that's not good. And you need to figure that out. <laughs> or that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Both very helpful feedback. Both very, very helpful. <laughs> Both um, stuff I can trust. No, she's much more uh, detailed than that, but uh, I'm just playing it up. So then the next next step for you was this space that we're in now. So tell us about the... About Actually, the we went from the winery and we were able to take the equity built on that property and we bought 26 acres on Ribbon Ridge. Oh, that's right. That's right. Where we live. And we've since planted that out over the last four years. And uh, I've plant, I have 14 acres of Pinot Noir out there. And um, six acres of it is is going to be fourth leaf this year, mm. and then uh, the other eight acres we put in this last fall. Mm. So tell me about that space. Why that space? Well, it kind of comes down to that thing where you you know in 2016 we built the little winery, and gave us more opportunity to bring in more people to build the brand bring more people in the door, sell wine, build brand, kind of all those things that it takes to build a business. And we were doing really well in 2015 again, we had gotten, we were still kind of running off the fumes of all this incredible press that we got. And we'd done pretty well and put some cash in the bank and you know, and you just see all these people coming to Oregon and being an Oregon boy, and loving wine the way I love wine. <clears throat> and loving not only wine, but loving dirt. And it's like I'm the biggest dirt nerd, you know? Like, I mean, it's just like I love the dirt here. You know, I love the smell of it. I love what it does to the grape. And, you know, I just see whether it's, you, you know, Resonance, Jadot, and all these families from all over the world coming, Jack Kendall Jackson, you know, it's like you just see these little pieces that you love so much, just maybe you don't get to, maybe you don't get to own one, you know, and um, maybe you don't get to have your own vineyard and maybe you don't get to do it the way you want to do it because, and not, not just like, you know, yeah, there's a lot of dirt, but I mean, it, the, these exquisite dirts, like, like you know, Amiola and Yemo Carlton and Dundee and these upper elevation vineyards and these, 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 these I mean, to be honest, Grand Cru sites, mm -hmm. Grand Cru, Oregon. It's a it's a real thing. <laughs> um, and if you you know if I if I don't take those risks to get into Grand Cru, Oregon at this point, like um, I may never get to. Mm -hmm. You know, I just might not get to. And so um, 
that's what that's about. You know, it's about having an opportunity to, you know, I don't want to just make wine. <clears throat> I want the chance to make some of the best wines. And you can't make the best wine without having the most incredible sights. And, um, and so that's what that's about. It's about, uh, we got super fortunate with the Ribbon Ridge property. It was on the market for a while. It was a really beat up piece of property. Um, it wasn't like a big normal like slope that everybody is like, oh, that's inexpensive to farm. All the normal things somebody who had money would do. Um, you know, it was like, there's kind of like two big benches. There's like 10 acres on, 12 acres on the top and 12 acres on the bottom. And it's, it sits at 600 feet and then the bottom one's like 400 and there's a couple steep spots. And, but I love it because I love harvesting like that. I love having vineyards that um, are really multi-dimensional in terms of elevation and aspect mm -hmm. because it gives me tons of opportunity to be able to harvest fruit at the most optimal time instead of having like the whole vineyard come down at the same time. Instead, like this vineyard is going to, it's going to pick so perfectly because it'll just start in this one spot and then another couple days later, this next spot will be ripe and then this next spot and then the next spot and it'll just fall perfectly. And um, that's what I love about upper elevation vineyards and vineyards with other aspects and for me I've always been I've always had vineyards where I have some stuff at three couple at 300 and those all come at the same time in the winery and then there's the 500 elevation stuff and then that comes a couple like a week later and then you've got 800 700 feet and that comes the next week and each one of those wines is so different and so unique in terms of power and presence but in the same vein they're optimal for where their location is when they come into the winery you know, they're all coming to the winery at perfect bricks, perfect acidity for their space. And I'm never rushing to have to be like scrambling saying, you know, it's all right at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then you, you start having to make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And the less sacrifices you have to make in fruit coming into the winery, the more optimal it comes in, the better the wines are. And the less winemaking I have to do. And I mean, the less me, you know, pushing the grape around, the more you get the vineyard, the site, the place, mm -hmm. and less like hard winemaking I have to do um, makes it better. It makes the wines better. And so that's what that vineyard was about. And now, I mean, people have come and tried to buy that property basically from us a couple of times already. And it's just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and we live there. There's kind of an old farmhouse that we've remodeled. The kids love it. We got a bunch of dogs chickens and all the goofy stuff <laughs> and uh and then that property uh, the equity from that property gave me the ability to convince the bank to buy this one and that's that's what that is and so 35 acres here it was originally owned by john jennison and um uh 20 20 planted 22 years ago 16 acres of Pinot, five acres of Chardonnay. The top Chardonnay is at 700 feet elevation. Um, there's a beautiful place to build a home up here. We'll, we will probably build the Hawk and Linnae Winery up here outside of Purple Hands. Marquis and I own this property and the Ribbon Ridge property outside of Purple Hands, mm -hmm. which has been a really cool opportunity for us to, um, with the support of our you know, partners in MPH, to do kind of uh, build our own livelihoods in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and now this vineyard, the vineyard on Ribbon Ridge is called West Wind. Um, kind of, you know, we kind of sit below Bald Peak there and the wind comes from the west. Okay. 
And then uh, this one is called Hawk and Linnea, which is uh, the names of the middle names of my two children. And um, Marquis and I have started a separate brand outside of Purple Hands, like just our own little brand called Hawk and Linnea, um, which are wines that are built specifically from all estate fruit. And uh, we're Purple Hands, you know, we source fruit like Shea and Freedom Hill and um, Latchkey and Krupp and Holstein and Wickman and all these exquisitely Grand Cru incredible vineyards. But then Hawk and Linnea is just just our Ribbon Ridge site and fruit from uh, Hawk and Linnea Vineyard, Dundee Hills. Mm -hmm. And so eventually there'll be a Chardonnay, a vineyard designated for both vineyard, and then um, the first release that we had, which is called Imprint, which is a blend of the two vineyards together. Uh, we don't plan to grow it very big for any time coming because Purple Hands is really um, what's important right now. But it's, it's really fun to have uh, a new project that's something Marquis and I have really built together mm -hmm. uh, and something we can, you know, something uh, that's built just out of the state fruit, which I think is a cool concept. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that estate fruit. Obviously, the, your 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 other vineyard is just just coming into just coming into its own. What, tell me about this site and what you've learned from it so far, and what what excites you about it. Well, it was hard. The first vintage we got off it was nineteen, um, and nineteen was one of the more challenging vintages uh, I've had, or you know, since thirteen or something. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like. I'm lucky to have been through so many difficult vintages um, that I really just waited in 19 till October to pick. Um, and we did like, you know, our whole 110 tons that first week of October. Um, so we picked everything. But when we bought the site, uh, Alex of Sokol Blosser, Sokol Blosser was leasing the vineyard. Uh, and so even though we owned it, they still had right, they still had a lease and were farming it most, you know, so we, we were able to, Alex was an amazing guy and was able to, he gave me some, um, he let us take like three acres. So we got up to about 10 tons off the site in 2019. So I just bottled that, which was super exciting. Um, and so, you know, I think the crazy thing is, is when people come up here, cause I, I also remember when I was buying the vineyard, a lot of winemakers were saying, oh, that vineyard has a lot of reduction and people were talking about it because people have you know the vineyard's been around for 22 years and a lot of people have made just insanely great wines from here and upper elevation chardonnay in the dundee hills at 700 feet is like there's there's nowhere that has old chardonnay in this valley like that i mean there is you know a handful of places and it's exquisite but there's not very many mm -hmm. so it's really really special um and but the crazy thing is, is i've i've made a wine from every vineyard that touches this property a 94 points in Wine Spectator two or three times over the last like eight years. And it's not so much like that's not like, you know, color popping kind of stuff. It's more just like I know the dirt, I know the place, uh, I know that whatever issues maybe it did have or didn't have were farming mm -hmm. uh, and that it just needed to be taken care of correctly, mm -hmm. uh, cropped right, farmed right, needed some, needed some love. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I've, I've had so many incredible wines I've made from Holstein, which cut corners this vineyard on the top. Obviously, Latchkey have done everything with, which is covers half of this whole vineyard on the side here. Krupp Vineyard, which is across the street, I've done incredible stuff with. And so I just, you know, 
This place speaks my language. <laughs> back up a second to something you said that I thought was interesting. Um, you talked about the ripening at different times, different elevations, different on your same site. Uh, I'm curious, uh, obviously you have a different definition for ripening than perhaps uh, other people you've learned from. I'm, I'm curious what you, oh, is that a trend in Oregon wine? Are you that's something you're seeing people picking earlier, picking differently than they used to? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's the thing is like, I mean, I love, I love all Oregon winemakers and, but you know, sometimes everybody just kind of goes with what somebody else cool is doing, which is pretty, it's fine. Um, but I, I, I mean, it, you know, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I feel like everybody always says that my wines are huge. Um, and I think they start, my wines always start big, but they, they hold crazy acidity and they're very, they like, and they, they finish really soft. And um, so I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't really know that. I think it's just, it's, I think everybody has their own little style and um, I don't know if there is like a, I just hope deep down that everybody's making what they wanna make. That's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. And if you're making something because you think, if you're making, you know, but it's at the same time, it's like every great artist mimics their favorite artist. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, that's just the way it is. Like, you can't help that by happening. Like, I love Beau Frere. I love Ken Wright. I love, you know, Eminent Domain. I love what Drew Voigt does in Eminent Domain. It's like, it's like we all, I mean, it's like, I make what I love to make, but I also make what I want to eat. And, you know, you just, you know, sometimes you just, I don't know, you can't blame people for wanting to emulate, you know, their favorite chef or their favorite musician or whatever. I mean, you know, it's kind of sometimes in the nature of it. And so how do you define, right, what is, what, is a, what is a perfect time to pick for you? What are you looking for? Acidity is so important. Obviously bricks are important because you want, you know, I love to have a little bit of ripeness, but acidity is very important too. So making sure that you're finding that balance. I just love freshness and I've loved freshness and vibrancy since I ever started making wine or had the opportunity to really like process the fact of picking fruit, picking grapes and bringing it into the winery and making wine, that opportunity to be in the vineyards with Ken and, and we're just tasting that fresh fruit. I think, I think really what separates me is like, maybe I've, made, eat, I've eaten more Pinot Noir grapes than anyone in this entire valley. That's really maybe why I'm, I am even have an opportunity to make good wine. As I've, I think I've developed a palate for what a good Pinot Noir grape should taste like. And, um, or maybe it's just my palate, obviously. Uh, and so I just love freshness, vibrancy. And if I'm tasting that, then I'm, you know, then, then if all those things like are there, then you're bringing it back to the lab and you're making sure that bricks and acidity are in the wheelhouse, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if acidity's too little or bricks are too little or too high or vice versa, you know, it's all about balance and, you know, cliche, but. For me, wines are about balance, and I'm not trying to make Burgundy. I don't want to make Burgundy. 
I want to make Oregon <clears throat> and Oregon is different than Burgundy and it has a different place. It sits in a different pocket. It's not the same tune um, you don't, um, you know, you don't tune it the same way. It's not Burgundy. I don't want to make that. And I want to, I want to, I want the opportunity to showcase purity of where Oregon's pocket is. Mm -hmm. And I'm obviously still trying to find that myself. Um, but that's, that's what I want to do is I want to show off how incredible Oregon Chardonnay is, Oregon Pinot Noir is. And I don't think it has to be in that same pocket as, you know, Burgundy to be, to be the best or to just be incredible. And I don't think it should. I think it, you know, obviously there's similarities that will resonate quality um, to anyone, but you know, they're the same, but different. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, obviously we're talking to you August 2020, uh, we're dealing with the uh, COVID pandemic right now and sort of curious how it's affected your wine life and maybe affected kind of your plans for harvest and the immediate future. Yeah, harvest will be unique. You know, everybody will be masked up. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the migrant labor situation is interesting. There's been a lot of um, COVID happening in those, um, you know, families and just because people are, are, you know, their living is a little tighter on top of each other. So um, there's been some hot spots for that. So we have to take into consideration how we're going to kind of properly set up for that. Probably have, you know, a lot of alcohol sprays around, bottle sprays, 70% or more. Uh, everybody will be masked. There'll probably be a lot of gloves. Um, and then we'll just deal with it as it comes in that sense, making sure that, you know, even in the winery and, and having labor come in and sorting and stuff like that, we'll have to properly mask people. And it's just basically going to be harvested, you know, like you're going to a grocery store, um, wearing a mask and gloves and staying away from people. And um, it's hard, but we'll get through it. Wine sales have been pretty wild in the tasting room. It's been pretty amazing. People have been really supportive. Our DTC has been fantastic, which I feel so lucky for. Um, you know, we did have the government, we had a government closure obviously for a couple months. Uh, and that was hard, but we were able to keep it going through online sales and doing a lot of special pushes and stuff. So we did okay. Uh, and then we were able to open the doors and had a couple really great months. And then obviously spikes happened again and people kind of slowed down a little bit, but it's still been all right. We've had some really great months. National sales have been tough. National sales are tough and we, we do, you know, we're in 35 states. So even being a small producer like we are, we, 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 you know, we make 6,000 cases. We'd say at least 4,000 of that goes wholesale, like goes national sales to restaurants, glass pours across the country. Um, that has been really hard because no restaurants are open. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's the business is just different. You know, if some people are kind of used to selling everything DTC, it's not much of a difference for them. Mm -hmm. um, and our DTC has been great, so we're fine there. From a national sales, um, that's hard. You know, we're probably doing on a good month 35 to 40% of what we normally do, national sales. And that's hard, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, and you know, you got wines being released and uh, publications are closed. Like even, you know, Wine Spectator was shut for two months when basically they usually bring in or any of these magazines by any, by any matter, Wine and Spirits, all the very important, important critics mm -hmm. shut down for months at a time when you would have been prepping and teeing up to have wines in to be being released in the magazines to help, you know, mm -hmm. inspire and um, pump sales in a sense, hoping, you know, you got some good ratings and stuff like that. So, I don't know, I don't know. I, it's, I feel like the new, the new success for us this year is, you know, cause obviously we've taken some risks and put ourselves in a position to try to control our business more and our business model and make better wines. And um, it's now kind of survive, like survive the years. You know, hopefully this doesn't, hopefully things change, but you know, if they don't, then you know, you take it as it comes and you tighten everything up a little bit more. And I feel like we're lucky to have more estate fruit now because we can farm as much fruit as we were, as we make. I mean, we make 6,000 cases at Purple Hands and I can easily make that just with the two estates now. Mm -hmm. um, farm it for much less uh, and still farm it as well. And so that's, that's, that's something that can help us. Uh, but um, yeah, I just, you know, it'd be nice when restaurants open up back up around the country and you can, you know, all of a sudden national sales pick up again because mm -hmm. it just, I mean, that sounds like Manhattan is a ghost town. There's no one there mm -hmm. uh, from the distributors that I talk to and my friends who live there. No one, no one is there anymore. And we sold a lot of wine in Manhattan and anywhere like that. And you know, all these great restaurant communities across the nation, there's just people just up and left. They're living upstate or out in the country for six months in a rental house. Who knows if they'll open their restaurants again, ever. So, does it change your strategy going forward? Do you do you think more about DTC and less about distribution? I, I think so. Um, I think strategy is the same in a sense as like survive. You know, which I think is probably not the coolest, smartest strategy, <laughs> but and I, I just mean it like it's like you know, as a business owner, I've been doing Purple Hands for fifteen years now. And I mean, it doesn't make me good at it, but I feel like if anything that I've learned is just basically you never, never, don't ever be comfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learned that forever ago. Like if your hustle isn't extremely strong on every front and you're not constantly being creative on how you do what you do, um, you know, if Instagram is the, you know, the new new of how you sell wine, um, Okay, but it, you know, it's like, there's a lot, you know, there's so many different ways to try to stay creative and build, build a community and build sales. And I feel like I've been doing that for so long that, um, I don't know, I'm used to it. Maybe not good at it, but used to, I'm used to grinding hard to try to keep a little business alive already. So. Here we are. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say bring it on because that's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, not at this point in the yeah. year. Not at this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's not fun, but we'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. So tell me, obviously you've, you've 
had quite a lot of change in the last four or five years mm -hmm. you've built, built and added and, and what do you see as you look ahead? You obviously have your new brand that's going to be a state food only. What do you see for Purple Hands? What do you see for here? What do you do? You have kind of goals in mind, or or new, or the new projects in line, or or what? What's the next ten years look like? Yeah, if all goes well, uh, we survive this pandemic. Uh, we'll build a new winery up here, a really pretty gravity flow thing right over in the hill over here, kind of the classic Pennerash, Colleen Clemens. Uh, Alexana processing Ponzi processing on the top barrels underneath. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really smart build. Build a new tasting room on top of that, hopefully, and maybe hire an assistant winemaker. Um, I feel like I'm getting, you know, maybe more tired than I used to. I mean, I'm totally strong and tough and. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like, uh, I don't know, I'm just at 40, you know, I mean, I just, I'm on a tractor all the time. I'm, I'm in the winery. I do all of our winery work and really the winery, when we built the winery, I knew it was too small um, just because it's all I could afford. And I knew it would give me a footprint to be able to get us somewhere. Um, it was never the end all. Um, you know, even though some people, they're like, oh, why would Cody ever build in downtown Dundee, blah. And it's like, I ha I, that's the step. It was a step I took to get to this place, to go to that, to do to that, to that, to that, you know? Um, so, but, yeah. Someone you can give all the fun tasks to. That's what you're looking for. Yeah, I, I don't know about all of them, because I'm a total glutton for punishment. <laughs> But I just, maybe, yeah, just take some pressure off, have someone that I can trust. And again, having the winery so small, it's, it's hard to trust someone because it's just a very delicate space and I do a lot. Usually you're only supposed to be able to make like, like a case per square foot and I make like three and a half. It's just, and it's necessary, but it's not recommended. <laughs> Uh, you know, we stack our barrels super high. We just, we just, I just punch it. We just fill everything so much. It's, it's, it's dialed. It's smart. It's done. But it's, but it's not for someone who hasn't been on a forklift their whole life or, you know, really good at running that equipment and things like that. It, it's, it takes a, a touch because of, um, but, you know, building a winery that has a little more wiggle room for, being able to, you know, hire people when give them space to not run into things, um, not, you know, mm -hmm. so that sounds cool. Um, we fired, we hired our first uh, vineyard manager. I, we we farm Hawk and Linnae and Westwind in ourselves in house. Mm -hmm. So we're farming 36 acres ourselves um, of the 60 acre to a six years. So that's really huge and super exciting. I think we'll probably hire one more vineyard guy to help between the two estates and then take some pressure off of me because I'm kind of like the assistant. I'm the assistant winemaker and the assistant vineyard manager and then also the full-time winemaker. Um, so yeah, just the opportunity to try to build trust and um, um, you know, have multiple layers to a staff and we have an incredible little staff and we do a lot with a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but. Yeah, have have a little more help sounds nice. 
and also just kind of getting there. I feel like I'm such a, I've been such a control freak in a sense of my wines and quality. Like as I get older, kind of decentralizing command is something that's, I feel like really important for a business to be successful. Um, you know, and I've been so detailed and uh, tight on my winemaking for so long and, you know, just kind of like monetized into it that I think for us to, just as we grow, if we do with Purple Hands and stuff, kind of like decentralizing, finding people you trust to mm -hmm. do really good work and stuff is, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to do, but I think it's a very important part of growth. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm always like that guy, just like Ken or Roland, like, I'm all in 100%, but <clears throat> there's just a lot more moving pieces now, you know, with kids and families and vineyards. And, you know, it's not just like 3,000 cases of Purple Hands in Rocco anymore. You know, there's big vineyards and wineries and families, and there's just a lot of moving pieces. And I find myself trying to uh, execute it all. And I'm pretty much, a, you know, I'm kind of a perfectionist and it's, it's not working very well. <laughs> I find myself, you know, not other people disappointed, but I just find myself being like, oh my God, why did I, why did I do that today? Why did I go so, why did I go all those places and try to do all that stuff all at the same time? I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> but I love it too. I love the opportunities. I feel so fortunate to, to, um, to, to, you know, to be doing what I love. Mm -hmm. yeah. Super lucky. Obviously, you have a you have a pretty interesting perspective on, Oregon, on the Oregon wine industry. Uh, tell me about what the biggest changes you've seen are, what the biggest differences are in Oregon wine now versus when you sort of were aware of it, and and where you see it heading in the future. I feel you know I feel like just it's recognized now. That's exciting. And, you know, the Chardonnay, Chardonnay thing going on in Oregon is super exciting. You know, Walter Scott and Evening Land. And I remember when I was in 2007, you know, I've seen photos of Dominique LaFont. I've met his daughter a couple times. I've never got to meet Dominique, but um, I had a 2007, I was 27, and he was making wines for Evening Land. And that was, 07 was like one of the first vintages he made there. He'd been in Oregon hanging out for, you know, 15 years, 20 years before that, like paying attention, consulting, I think, and doing lots of different stuff. But I tasted one of the first wines that he, that I knew he had really had a big hand in. And it was an evening land shard. And, you know, I've drank white burgundy my whole life and, 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 you know, wines from all over the world forever. But I drank that Chardonnay and from Oregon and from evening land. And I just like something just went off and I was just like, it just changed, it changed, it, I think it literally not only just, it kind of, like I loved Chardonnay, I'd been studying Chardonnay in New Zealand, cold fermentation Chardonnay back when I was in my, you know, early 20s, 24, 25, 26. I came back to Oregon and wanted to really kind of re-stem the Ken Wright Cellar Chardonnay program and he and I were working on a whole new thing. And so I love Chardonnay and I have for a long time. Um, it didn't know, it doesn't mean I knew how to make it well. Um, but I'd been trying, you know? And um, I remember having that 07 Chardonnay from Eveningland and it just, blew, it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. And actually that 07 that I had was what convinced Scott to let me plant the first acre of Chardonnay at, um, at Latchkey, mm -hmm. which, so, which since I've made four vintages of at Purple Hands or five or something now. And um, we planted it back in 13, but um, 
Yeah, I just love, I love the fact that people have had guidance, um, you know, that Pinot Noir became powerful enough as an icon of Oregon for us to make room for something else, which is as exquisite and as exciting. Um, and that people have taken it just to that next level and have created, you know, have styles and techniques and visions for it um, that, uh, you know, that just showcase it as some of the best Chardonnay in the world. Mm. And it's super exciting to see that Oregon can do that. Uh, I wasn't, you know, certain it could. And again, back then having that 07 and tasting all, so many unbelievable Chardonnay since then that I have, you know, I, I, it is one of the best places to grow Chardonnay in the world and make Chardonnay. And I think that's really ex exciting because Chardonnay and Pinot are my favorite grapes. So, Works out well. Lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> what about as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? What's, what's, what's it going to look like? What's going to happen in the next five, ten years? Oh, uh, you know, again, the same reason why I risk to buy the properties that we've got now and do these things. And it's just going to get more and more competitive. I think the, there's one tough spot that Oregon finds itself in, which is that it, as much and as big as I believe it is and will get, it still doesn't have, it has, it has the Pinot file and, you know, the Burgundy lovers, the, the Pinot file lovers attention from across the world and country, but it doesn't have like the everyday all the time. And so, you know, a lot of those everyday consumers are still like, you know, is, where's Oregon? Is it even, where is it an island out by Hawaii? You know, like, where is that place? Mm -hmm. It's like California, 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 or Europe, Europe, Europe. And I feel like it just, it's tough because there's a lot of grapes being planted in Oregon right now. There's a lot of new wineries coming. And Portland's only so big and you can't sell all your wine in Portland. And there's only so many, so many shelf spaces, even all over the country in a sense, uh, for that little Oregon, you know, thing, because it's not as big as California. You know, you go look at a, at a wine list and, you know, most normal restaurants, fine dining restaurants, and it's all California. And then got a little Oregon sections is like five bottles of Pinot Noir. And everything's like, it's like a hundred bottles of, you know, California and Europe. It's like, until, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of wine, a lot of grapes being grown, and there's still, we're still, I feel like, you know, I just, with as big as Oregon feels to me in my little bubble, it, you know, it's still building. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a, you know, as actually a reminder to myself, you know, you still got to build brand Oregon, and it's important. And... You know, there's so many little wineries coming up these days. I feel like I'm kind of more of part of an older guard where everybody was really supportive. And sometimes some of these, I don't know, if, if the younger, some of these younger, it seems more competitive and, you know, a little bunch of little wineries and trying to sell everything in Portland. And it doesn't quite have that same vibe. And at some point, um, you know, I, I hope that comes full circle in a mm -hmm. sense where we're all kind of like, it's, this is Oregon, build brand Oregon. I mean, it's easy to kind of rest your laurels on these AVAs that have been built and just the Dundee Hills or just Amity Yola or just Yamil Carlton. 
but it's not really fair to Oregon and Oregon is still what really needs to be built, you know, but there's just, you know, there's a couple wineries that have so much cash flow and they can kind of do what they want. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like Oregon just still needs to continue to, to build Oregon, but that takes money and time. Not something we all have a lot of. And manpower, which is also. Yeah. 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 Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover, we should have covered? I don't think so. All right, awesome. Sounds well, good. thank you so much. Thank you. Your time for showing off this beautiful new place. Thanks for, here. yeah, thanks for coming and taking a look yeah. at it. Absolutely, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.